do please take your seats. Well, I wonder, I wonder what it was really like on the day of Pentecost. The way it was described in our first reading in the book of Acts. And it was interesting, wasn't it? We heard a different translation read from the one printed in our service sheets. Actually, I quite like the one that Andrea read. <laughs> but I wonder what it was like for those disciples who were there at that time. Well, of course, I can't reproduce it, but, well, I wonder. As I said, I can't reproduce it however hard I try. But something extraordinary happened in that room where all the disciples were gathered. It was absolutely awesome. It wasn't just a little waft of wind through the room. The extraordinary noise and commotion it caused could be heard down the road because it drew a whole crowd from the surrounding area. It was no quiet manifestation of God's presence. It was more like an explosion happening. So the first thing we actually have to think about when we think about Pentecost is what actually happened on that day? Well, let's look at that first reading from Acts um, that you've got there in your, in your sheets. First of all, we're told in the first verse that it was the day of Pentecost. In other words, it was already a major Jewish holiday, a bit like Easter or Christmas. And hundreds of thousands of Jews from countries all over the known world would have gathered in Jerusalem for the celebrations. But the second thing we're told in verse 1 is that Jesus' disciples were, that's who the they refers to, Jesus' disciples were all together in one place. And I think Luke refers to that because it's really significant. In fact, if, we, if I turn to, to back, which you can't see, but um, if I turn back to um, chapter 1, which is the, the chapter just before that, um, let's see what Jesus had told his disciples to do. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. And then, a bit further on, in verse 12 and 14, it says this. The disciples, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Spirit, and that's exactly what they do. They do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. Here they are, ten days later, all gathered together in a room. And then verse 2 says, in our passage, verse 2 says, that a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. Now, perhaps let's not misunderstand this. There was no actual wind. We're told it was, um, it was the sound, something like the sound of a violent wind, and it came from heaven. So it was supernatural. But what did it signify? 
Well, according to biblical scholar John Stott, right through the Bible, the word for wind, um, which in the Hebrew is ruach, and in the, in the Greek is pneuma, is used to denote the impartation of God's power by his spirit. That's what wind signifies. The spirit breathed life into Adam. The spirit filled Samson with power. Um, the mysterious presence of God is described when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says that the Spirit blows wherever he wills. He's describing the Spirit. So wind, right through the whole Bible, is a sign of God's power through his Spirit. And the second thing that occurs is that they saw in verse 3 what seemed to be tongues of fire that came to rest on each one of them. We were looking at that earlier with a bishop's hat, weren't we? Again, this is a supernatural phenomenon. It wasn't actual fire. We're told it's what seemed to be tongues of fire. So what does it mean? Well, a a chap called Simon Punsonby wrote a great um, book called God Inside Out. And in that book, he says, well, fire is probably the primary metaphor for the presence of God in the Bible. Remember, we have Moses. God speaks to Moses from a burning bush, the fire representing that God was present. God appeared as a consuming fire on the the top of Mount Sinai. Elijah called down fire onto onto the altar um, uh, um, uh, in in, in, uh, 1 Kings. And John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptise not just with water, but with fire. And fire represents the blazing purity of God. In the culture of the day, fire was used to refine metals, to purify metals, and so it's a symbol of the purifying power of God's Spirit. But it's also a symbol of the passion which the Spirit imparts to believers, giving them the boldness to share the gospel. Sometimes we talk about people, don't we? We say that their their faith is really on fire. That's because the presence of God is clearly in them. The fire is burning brightly. I think Maureen Devine, a couple of weeks ago, spoke about um, the the, the joy that the Spirit brings, shining through people. And the third thing that happens in verse 4 is that the disciples, now filled with the power of the Spirit, all start talking in other languages, in other tongues. Now, this doesn't mean that the disciples suddenly decided to brush up their GCSE French and try it out on the visitors. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, What happens is, it's a miracle of speech. The word used is is glossolalia, translated as tongues. But it's a miracle of speech, and it's the supernatural ability to speak in languages that people haven't learned. We're told that the crowd was made up of devout Jews from every nation under heaven. And by that, Luke will have meant the Jews of what's called the dispersion. A lot of, a lot of the Jews had, uh, under persecution had left the area and, and gone out to other countries and they came back for this celebration. And they lived in, in, in North Africa, Italy, Turkey, northeast of the Caspian Sea and much of the Middle East. They all spoke different languages. And here we're told in the last part of verse 11 that they heard the disciples speaking about God's deeds of power and the astonishing implication for these Jews is that God's wonders are no longer just for the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, but for people of all nations and all languages. The disciples were Galileans, and here they were talking to these people in many different foreign languages, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally on this point, the disciples were not, as some jokers suggested in verse 13, drunk, because it was too early in the morning, as, as um, Luke points out, or as Peter points out in verse 15, and anyway, they were ably speaking in other languages, unlikely to be drunk. So the three manifestations that we've looked at, the sound of the violent wind, the appearance of what looked like fire, and the supernatural ability to speak in other, other languages, all point to the outpouring of God's Spirit, which Jesus had promised and predicted before he ascended into heaven. Now, with all this going on, the best question comes in verse 12, when Luke tells us that, um, amazed and perplexed, the, the, the people, the crowd ask one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? And that's the question we need to turn to next. And in the next section of the chapter, from verse 14 onwards, the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples and ardent supporters, stands up in front of this huge crowd that's gathered, and he answers that question. And this is what he tells them. He said, in verses 17 to 21, he quotes almost word for word the prophecy from the prophet Joel made several hundred years earlier. And all the Jews there would have known that prophecy well. And it says that one day God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, on all people. In other words, that God would no longer be just the God of the Jewish people, but of all people on earth. And this prophecy, he declares, has been fulfilled here today at Pentecost. And although that's where our reading finished, in, in the following verses, he goes on to explain the link between the outpouring of God's Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ. And in effect, what he says is this. He says, look, this man Jesus, the one walking around who's been doing all the miracles, and the one who you all clamoured for his death on a cross... That one, God raised him from the dead, which we, his disciples, witnessed, and now he's returned to his Father in heaven, but he's given us his Holy Spirit, who has been poured out today. It's in, it's in him, in Jesus, that you need to put your trust. It turns out, Peter says, that this prophecy, which finishes with the words, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, referred to the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the explanation of Pentecost. But let's ask a final and crucial question, which is, well, what does that mean for us here in Reading in 2012, in our lives here? And, you know, the message, the message of, this, of this book, the Bible, this love letter from God, is that each one of us is partly responsible for sending Jesus to the cross. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are part of that. But by conquering death and rising to new life and sending his spirit, Jesus offers us new life here and now and eternal life after we die. And he heals our relationship with God when we put our trust in him. And on that day of Pentecost, it tells us, 3,000 people, on listening to what Peter said, 
put their trust in Jesus and turned to him and got baptised. And the Christian church was born. That's, that's what we celebrate at Pentecost. It was the birth of the Christian church. I wonder how many of us here this morning might believe in Jesus, but maybe, maybe we realise or we're realising that we haven't actually put our whole trust in him. Do you remember the story of the, the rich young man who comes to Jesus in, in one of the Gospels? In fact, it's in several of the Gospels the story is told. This rich young man comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he knows Jesus has the key. He believes in Jesus. He, he knows Jesus has the key. Or he wouldn't have asked him that question. And he says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him. He says, you know, you're a pretty good guy, but there's still one thing that you lack. Jesus knows what he's relying on, really. And Jesus says, go sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. And the man, his face is downcast and he, he turns away and he, and he walks away from Jesus because he simply can't bring himself to put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why giving money away is so good for us, if you like. It's so powerful because it breaks the hold that money has on our lives. It stops that getting in the way of our relationship with God. But if we were to put our trust in him, what would it look like? Well, something certainly seems to have happened to Peter, doesn't it? Um, in verse 14, Peter, the, this, this fisherman from Galilee who, who in the Gospels is always putting his foot in it, always making a fool of himself, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he becomes this great orator, this great preacher at Pentecost and 3,000 people turn to Jesus on that day. And God sent his Spirit so that we too can have the passion and the courage to reach out to our community here in Reading with the good news of Jesus Christ and to let people know how he brings new purpose to people's lives, how he heals up wounds, how he brings joy into broken lives. And it's been such a privilege in the last 11 months since we've been here to listen to people who talk about how they've been clearly been touched by God's Spirit here at St. Matthew's. One person said how God has softened their heart and mended broken family relationships. Another has said how he's healed their broken heart. Another's said he feels like a new man. I've heard some of the children talk about how much they love Jesus, how much they love God, how they pray to him when they're fearful or, or they need something. And not just children, I know of several men and women who are now praying in a new way because God's Spirit is drawing them to pray. And actually, that's the secret. Turning to Jesus, calling on his name. We could sum up the entire meaning of Pentecost by the first two lines and the last line of that prophecy in Joel. God says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all people, but he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as a friend of mine, Malcolm Duncan, once said, we don't need another Pentecost. We've been given everything that we need to be fully empowered disciples of Jesus Christ, moving in the power of the Spirit. Our weakness, perhaps, for some of us, is that we haven't yet made the step, if you like, from believers to 
disciples. But we can, by following the example of Jesus' disciples, who obediently stayed together and prayed together with the oldest prayer of the church, come Holy Spirit, as they waited for the Spirit to fall on that day of Pentecost. And I think that if each one of us got on our knees for the next month, every day, and prayed, come Holy Spirit, I think we would see huge things happen. I think we'd see great change. And I want to just conclude by reading a prayer. Kirsty read it to me while we were on holiday, actually, and, and it struck me that it fitted so well. It's a, it's a favourite prayer of Mother Teresa's, and she prayed it every day. And this is what she prayed. Dear Lord, help me to spread your fragrance wherever I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that all my life may only be a radiance of yours. Shine through me and be so in me that every soul I come into contact with may feel your presence in my soul. Let them look up and see no longer me, but only you, O Lord. Stay with me, then I shall begin to shine as you do, so to shine as to be a light to others. She prayed that prayer every single day, Mother Teresa. Let's just be silent for a moment and ask God to come and speak to each one of us by his Holy Spirit about how we might respond to the gift of Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit. For some of us, will we, will we carry on ignoring him or will we invite him to come into our lives? Will we carry on resisting him, neglecting him, or will we take a risk and call on the name of the Lord and pray, come Holy Spirit, every day?